Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. Since the end of the Second World War, the international rules-based system has been determined by developed countries with economic power who came together to form multilateral organizations like the United Nations. In today's world, other nations with conflicting interests are challenging the foundations of the UN and this international rules-based system, making it difficult to reach consensus on pressing global issues like climate change, migration, terror, protectionism, and pandemics. How do we begin to repair this broken international rules-based system? Andrew Mitchell, British Member of Parliament and former Secretary of State for International Development, discusses ways in which the UN can be adapted to today's globalized society. Today on CID's Speaker Series podcast, Anna Mislovich, Master's in Public Policy student at the Harvard Kennedy School, interviews Andrew Mitchell, who provides further insight on the deterioration of the international rules-based system and how the world can begin to repair it. Thank you so much for being here today at the Kennedy School and now on the podcast. So referring back to the subject of your talk, I wondered if you could talk about why is the international rules-based system broken and what do you think we can do about it? It's great to be back at Harvard and at the Kennedy School. And as you say, I was trying to look at the international rules-based system and work out why it is broken. And of course, it was set up after the war. So it was the architecture post-World War II with the victors and China, who was really also a victor from World War II over the Japanese, uh, who set up uh, this structure. And it's endured a remarkably long time for today, since 1945. But increasingly, I think there is a consensus that the system is not fit for purpose and indeed that it's broken. And in my remarks today, I sought to trace the history of the UN on its current structure, the Bretton Woods institutions as well, which were set up after the war, the IMF, the World Bank, and to look at the applicability of these systems for the big problems that are coming down the track or indeed are already here. And I singled out five of them, really, climate change, migration, terror, protectionism and pandemics, all of which require more international cooperation and less narrow nationalism if they are to be successfully combated. And I then went through some of the ways it seems to me that the five veto-wielding powers at the UN have not necessarily stood up as tall as they should have done in discharging their responsibilities. And I talked about ways of trying to address the current veto-wielding structure, where there are the five victors of the Second World War who hold the veto, and the way they interact with the Security Council and the General Council of the United Nations, and how that might be changed, both in terms of the numbers of veto-wielding powers and the nature of the veto. And then I really sought to look at four different areas which need a lot of international attention and cooperation and work. The responsibility to protect, which was a brilliant policy negotiated by Gareth Evans, the former Australian foreign minister. And, you know, as a doctrine, it's wonderful, but it's a skeleton. There's no flesh on the bones. And, for example, it didn't mean anything to the Rohingya community driven out of Rakhine State across the border into Bangladesh in an act of ethnic cleansing. The responsibility to protect meant nothing 
to them. Secondly, the International Criminal Court, which of course Britain supports, but which does not have support from the US or Russia, or indeed uh, China. We need to work to make the International Criminal Court more exclusive. Very many countries do support it, but it's losing some support amongst African leaders, so we need to work on that. And thirdly, the way in which we treat refugees in our world today. There are 64 million refugees. And if you look at the way they've been treated in Syria, where half of this country are on the move, 11 million people out of 22 million have been displaced. Some of them, about half of them across the border, half of them internally displaced people. And 1 million people heading across the waters of the Mediterranean, putting themselves into the hands of the modern-day equivalent of the slave trader in a leaky boat in the hope of reaching a safer and more prosperous shore. And of those million of the 22 million Syrians, a quite extraordinarily large number of those who are graduates of universities in Syria, the very people who will be needed to rebuild Syria when this conflict is over, who are now settling a very long way from their homeland and their native country. And, and the way in which we look after refugees is a lesson itself. You could not have devised a worse system. If you'd set down to design not the best but the worst system for looking after refugees, in the case of Syria, that is what you have devised. And then finally, the importance of international humanitarian law breached by at least half the veto-wielding powers at the United Nations over the last couple of years, and the preeminence and vital nature of human rights, which of course belong to everyone, including some extremely bad people, and not just to nice people like us. So, so I was really looking at the system as it is, why it's as it is, and some views of areas where a lot of work needs to be done to reach a consensus and agreement on how to progress. I certainly wouldn't be arrogant enough to suggest I have the answers, but my talk today was really devised to flesh out some of the problems and point in the direction that cleverer minds than mine might go on to try and resolve these issues, cleverer minds that perhaps are here in this great American University. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. And on the subject of potential ways to reform the international system, as you reference now, your talk emphasized the potential for reforming the UN and particularly reforming the structure of the veto powers at the Security Council. And I wonder, thinking about that, if that effort were to be unsuccessful or to kind of meet with challenges, what do you see as sort of the other options or like next best options for moving the international system in a more positive direction? Well, if the UN system doesn't reform, you'll get mm -hmm. coalitions of the willing. And in my view, it's much better to try and have a United Nations that is effective. If the United Nations didn't exist, we would have to invent it. And the more that it can speak for the international community, the better. That will lead to less coalitions of the willing. And of course, as I set out today, when the United Nations agrees, it confers awesome legitimacy on the prescription which it supports. Great. And actually, this question kind of goes along a similar line in terms of one of the things that struck me in listening to your talk is that 
part of the challenge maybe is that there isn't just one international system. In a way, there's almost international systems or international networks at play now, and they have different actors and different values. And I'm thinking in particular of the influence of Russia and China and kind of presenting alternative international systems that are based on a different set of values with less focus on human rights and democracy than the UN system and the kind of traditional Western powers have had. So I guess I'd be curious to hear kind of what you think about that. And particularly the example that comes to mind for me, which you spoke to as well, was the case of Syria and the fact that there are these kind of alternative negotiations processes happening in Geneva and in Astana and kind of how ought we to think about these different networks of powers and specifically kind of how should we or how should Western powers engage with this Astana process that's being led by Russia? Well, on the narrow point about the Astana process, I think Britain has got one very junior foreign office official there. That's not right. and We need to have senior official there so that although Britain has a, an extremely difficult relationship with Russia at the moment because of what has happened in Salisbury where you know Russian officials have been conducting chemical attacks on our soil so it's a very difficult relationship nevertheless our relationship with Russia is by definition multifaceted and we need to try and help Russia with these negotiations. Now, you know, the Russians may say we need no help with the negotiations, but Britain will be, as a very significant international development player, Britain will have a role in the rebuilding of Syria. And, you know, I can't tell you today what it is, although our former Prime Minister David Cameron has already pledged a billion pounds of British money, some $1.3 billion, to the rebuilding of Syria when that time is reached. And you know, Britain, as part of the international community, has both a responsibility and an interest in making sure that uh, we help Syria when peace comes. And so, you know, from the Russian point of view, they may not want British help in their negotiations and they may not think we have anything to add, but we should be there in the wider interests of the international community to see if we can help. You mentioned the different views that between Russia and China on the one hand and the West loosely. And one of the things that I've come to the conclusion is it's not a very good idea, in my view, to bang on about democracy, not because there's anything wrong with democracy. And as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the best system, or rather, I think he said it is the worst system apart from all the others. But there's nothing wrong with banging on about democracy in one sense. But what we're really talking about is accountability. And I think you have a better conversation with the Russians and the Chinese if you talk about accountability rather than trying to thrust a system down their throats, which we know they don't approve of. You commented in your talk that conflict is development in reverse, which I thought was really interesting. And in thinking about this, I think you know the story of the 20th century has been a very positive one in a lot of senses in terms of poverty is declining, we see economic growth across the world in new ways. But it strikes me that the states that are in the most trouble or the places where there is the worst human suffering are these countries that are in conflict in fragile states where there's kind of a cycle of conflict and poverty. And these places are being left behind from the story of development in some ways. And so I'd be curious, drawing on your long experience in international development, how should we think about and approach doing development work in these difficult places? I think your analysis is a very good one. And it comes alive if you look at the map 
from northern Nigeria, where Boko Haram are quite strong as a terrorist organization. You go up to the Central African Republic, which is being enormously challenged. You go across to Sudan, where quite apart from the low-level conflict in Darfur, which still persists at one level, you've got the disharmony between North and South Sudan. You've got the enormous numbers of people who have migrated and have moved because of the fighting there. You've got uh, famine conditions in northern Nigeria as well as in South Sudan. And then you go across to Somalia, where also uh, you've got great disorder and Al-Shabaab as a terrorist organization. And then you head up across the sea to Yemen, the poorest country in the Middle East. You've got a belt there of misery of exactly the type you described. So if you look at that, you realise that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. In Somalia, Britain has done quite a lot to try and inculcate some progress, some development progress, but the lessons are pretty clear. You have to find a way of stopping the conflict. And in Somalia, we beefed up the forces of law and order and the military force, particularly the African Union military force that was there to try and address the military situation with al-Shabaab and the bad guys there. We also tried to make sure that there was support for services in local areas where there was a degree of accountability and where local population had set out the sort of leadership they wanted and had demonstrated support for it. So in a way you do different things. In South Sudan, the problem is you have a group of freedom fighters in this new state who have not managed to convert themselves from freedom fighters into government. And the problems in Yemen are very well rehearsed and the problems in northern Nigeria are pretty well rehearsed as well. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all, but at the end the vital truth about development is you have to stop conflict And then once you've stopped conflict, the way in which very poor people lift themselves out of poverty is by being economically active. And you can't be economically active if there's conflict going on all around you. And Once conflict uh, stops, you can start to educate children, you can start to provide basic health services, and you can start the key parts of an economy which then allow economic activities to take place, food to be grown and distributed and so forth, and basic development starts. So... I was thinking about when you were speaking, the paradox or the challenge that I find for myself as an American at the Kennedy School who cares deeply about the international issues that you were talking about. And I imagine that many of the young people in your country are in a similar position too in terms of being very interested in international work and yet being in systems that are in a bit of an isolationist moment at the moment. You have Trump and we have Brexit. Exactly. (laughs) So I wonder, thinking about how do I go work for the State Department when the State Department seems to be more and more marginalized under Trump? What kind of advice do you have or how should people like me, people at the Kennedy School who care about these international issues, make a difference on them in this isolationist moment that we're in? Well, first of all, you need to know that you can make a difference because you can. And your generation, more than mine, has this extraordinary opportunity to change the world. And it's partly because of globalization. It's partly because we now know we really are one world. It's only 20 years ago when things could be happening the other side of the world about which it took months for us to know what they were. Whereas today you know instantaneously what is going on. And there's no excuse for ignoring it. And that's why I think so many people in your generation... And I'm very conscious, having been at Peking University in Beijing last week, that what unites 
the younger generation of brilliant predominantly American people at Harvard and the younger generation of brilliant, predominantly Chinese students at Peking University. What unites you all is far, far greater than what divides you. And there is a determination amongst your generation, which wasn't really there amongst mine, to address these colossal discrepancies of opportunity which disfigure our world. So the first message is that you can and you should. Then when it comes to working for the State Department, well, you know, you, if you go to work for the State Department, uh, you can contribute to the wealth of knowledge and thinking there. But at the end of the day, you are a servant of the government. And the government is led by President Trump. So I don't have much sympathy for people who want to get into the system to work within it in a different way from that set by the government. I don't, if that's what you want to do, you shouldn't go and work for the State Department. You should go and work for an NGO or a think tank or one of the single-issue bodies that have very strong views which you share. But working in the government service is important. Politics remains the way in which things are done. If you want change, then politics is the way you achieve change, peaceful change through the political process. That's very important. But working for the State Department, you know, the State Department in America is a force for America's interests, but it's also a force normally for great good. And it works towards the sort of results we want to achieve, at its best, it is a, a world leader. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all of your insights. This has been really, really fascinating. So thank you. It's a pleasure. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.